Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Get outside and explore Chicago on a CAFC river cruise aboard Chicago's First Lady. Now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Called the number one boat tour in Chicago by TripAdvisor, CAC docents share the fascinating secrets and stories behind more than 50 famous buildings facing the Chicago River. Delight in panoramic views and hear how our hometown became world-renowned for its architecture. Book your tickets today at architecture.org. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It is Thursday, July 16th, 2020. But as you know, it's a podcast, so... Lord knows when you're listening to this, uh, just to give you a sense of what the world looks like at this point in time. The headline on my Chicago Sun-Times, delivered as always, home delivered as always, Pritzker Lightfoot try to block a spike. Yes, yes, COVID-19 is coming back, not just to the city of Chicago, not just to the state of Illinois, but the entire country. And there's a photograph of J.B. Pritzker, Governor Pritzker, with a state of Illinois mask on, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot with the city of Chicago mask on. So, the governor and the mayor are confronting the reality that this pandemic is not over yet. Uh, we'll probably talk about that with my bonus guests, as I do with all my bonus guests. I ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi, uh, Ben. My name is Lorraine Taros. I'm a steward with ASGE Local 704, which represents almost a thousand rank-and-file EPA workers in the Great Lakes region. Yes, Lorraine Targos and a frequent guest on our show. And I call her a triple threat because uh, she's a scientist. Uh, she works for the EPA, and she's also a political activist in the city of Chicago. And she has strong, I would call them lefty views. And I say this as a lefty. Uh, and so she could talk about national politics, local politics, environmental politics, and the politics of being a government worker in the age of Trump. And I'm just going to start, Lorene, like I always do by saying Lorene is protected by her union. The things she says are her opinions. She does not speak for the EPA. So leave her alone, Donald Trump. She's free to speak her mind. If you believe that people in the South can wave the Confederate flag. If you believe that people in the South have a First Amendment right to wave the Confederate flag, then you will agree with me that Lorene Targos has a First Amendment protected right to speak her mind. How about that, Lorene? Sounds excellent. Okay. I can see Donald Trump being swayed by that. Well, you know, he makes sense. Uh, the Confederate flag thing. I hadn't thought it that way. All right. I love so, the law. Of course I will abide by it. <laughs> 
Yes, I love the law. Of course, I, yeah, that's not really Donald Trump's thing. All right. Um, I guess we should start with uh, something that you had mentioned to me earlier, and I've been following it in the newspapers. Um, this gets uh, to the Donald Trump's curious attitude and federal government's curious attitude of Trump age toward EPA workers. Um, they want you EPA workers to go back to the office, whether it's safe or not in the midst of this pandemic. Talk a little bit about that, Lorene. Well, that's really been um, a big fight with um, the union AFTE um, over these last few weeks. You know, people in the private industry are getting notices from their offices that they're not expected to come into work for at least 12 months. Meanwhile, you know, while our administration tells us that they're trying to protect our health and safety, they're talking about sending us back to the office when we're working perfectly efficiently and effectively from home and not getting infected with COVID. So, um, you know, there's constant challenges. Um, Workers are organizing and talking to each other and fighting literally for their lives. Um, as this administration tries to continue to gaslight us about what's safe and what's not. Um, so let's talk about that. What are your concerns about what is not safe uh, about going back to the work environment? Well, you know, they've said to us that they're going to send us, you know, let's start going back. Let's start going back to normal. But, you know, infections today are higher than when we went into quarantine in the middle of March. And so what is it that's pushing them to create this phase plan? Um, you know, there was phase zero, which meant that they would shut down the office, um, whichever office you're supposed to go to, do a seven-day cleaning. And then phase one would allow people to come back to the office um, on a voluntary basis. Phase two is a similar type of voluntary program. And then phase three is when you are involuntarily forced to go back into office. Um, Right now, Region 5 is in Phase 1. We were supposed to be in Phase 2, but uh, fortunately, workers pushed back hard and we were were able to stay in Phase 1, at least for this week. Um, But they're talking about sending us into Phase 2, and there's only like two weeks between these periods um, off of a distorted assumption that, you know, 15 days is enough time to determine that it's safe to go to the next phase. Um, so theoretically, we could be in the office by August if we didn't fight it. Um, you know, of course, we're trying to stop that in any way we can. Um, this week, they're, negoci- they're negotiating with our national union about this, uh, about the return to work plan. But because these is also, you know, there are local issues at stake, you know, my hope is that there's going to be some local bargaining, too. Now, when you when you say they're trying to force it, uh, do they have the authority to just deliver an ultimatum or is there some kind of language in a contract that protects you? Well, you know, federal workers aren't allowed to strike. So if they were to force us back into the office, you know, what recourse do we really have? I mean, we have the same recourse that any you know, American could try to do to protect them. But as we're seeing in these protests and everything, you know, people are flouting people's civil rights all over the place. I mean, these are hazardous conditions and we didn't sign up to go to work to risk death for a one to 5% of our population of our workforce. So it's, 
it's you know they're not acknowledging the airborne spread of this acting as though cleaning surfaces is enough um there have been no physical partitions installed our toilets do not have covers i mean can you imagine using the bathroom and yeah. you know with your coworkers in a time like this um none of that has been acknowledged and yet they, they'll say oh well you know Nobody can predict what's happening with COVID right now. So we just got to suck it up. And it's like, exactly. No one can predict. So stop trying to send us back to work and the conversation's over. But instead they ask you, oh, we're helpless. We just have to, we have to get back to normal and we're doing our best and doing their best would be acknowledging that the safest thing to do would be to continue working, which is allowing us to work from home. You know, and I, I have to tell you that I have a sympathy or empathy for you, and I'll tell you why. Uh, as you know, because you've been to my uh, studio, the studio at the Sun-Times that uh, we did the show for over a year. I love that studio, and it's such a great intimate setting. I get to see my guests. Dennis is in the room. You know, you get what I'm saying? It makes for great conversation. But uh, we, I've been uh, doing the show from my attic Precisely because for the reasons you're saying, it's so much uncertainty, like in, in particular, just that, that small room and uh, uh, it's like, is there enough ventilation? Uh, there's just so many concerns, uh, people bringing people in from out of the building. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you never know who has uh, the virus or not. So just just to be completely safe. We've been doing this from the attic, and I don't think the Sun-Times is going to green light me coming back anytime soon because they're really being cautious. They're doing the right thing. And mm-hmm. so that leads to why – What I know it's hard to discern a motivation uh, from mm-hmm. a Trump appointee. You know, it's hard to go into the brain of a Trump person. But I'm trying to figure out what is motivating them. Is it that they – just want to mess with your minds and because they hate the EPA so much, or do they want to show that the they're unafraid of the virus, you know, like uh, Trump will not put on a mask, you know what I'm saying? And they mock the notion of masks. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think is motivating them? You know, there, you can, for, you know, doing working on politics as I have, you know, I pay a lot more attention to action than to words. And the, like we look to who will benefit and, you know, Trump's narrative has been, Oh, it's safe to go back. He wants to pretend as though it's safe. And by forcing workers back into the office, he can pretend like, Oh, it's safe to open up private industry again. And a lot of these private industries are saying, mm, no, thank you. And, you know, Congress has been trying to sneak limited liability into the into these COVID bills so that employees can't sue their employers for sending them back to work and having them catch and die or become disabled from COVID exposure. So, you know, it's the goal has always been dehumanizing workers to exploit their labor. And this is just a new, fun 2020 way of doing it, I imagine. Yeah, well, I uh, I got to believe you'll prevail. Well, I make no predictions uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, but uh, I'm hoping that you prevail on this because there is so much uncertainty. And just what you were talking about with the bathroom situation alone uh, mm-hmm. is frightening. We're going to get into this a little more when we talk about on the local level with the public schools. 
Uh, but uh, we'll stay we'll stay national. Uh, one of the things I uh, did, I gave you an assignment. I sent you an, an article that ran yesterday in the New York Times, which lays out Donald Trump's view toward the environment uh, and Joe Biden's view uh, toward the uh, the environment. We've talked in general about Donald Trump's view uh, toward the uh, environment. He's been deregulating like crazy almost from the moment. I think the first one of the first executive orders uh, he signed, if not the the first one, had to do with an EPA case in Michigan, uh, g- groundwater uh, case, as I recall, doing this off of my memory. But I believe it's one of the first. It, it, it was a Region 5 case, I want to say. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. so you dutifully read that article. Uh, what's your general sense about the difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden on the environment? Well, you know, Joe Biden clearly at least verbally acknowledges the fact that climate change is a problem and that he will address it. You know, earlier in the campaign, he had been talking about coming back to the Paris climate agreement, which is like, you know, if it was 1995, that would be an excellent step. Um, not enough in 2020. Um, this article in the New York Times portrays him probably a little bit more favorably than he deserves, um, acting as though there are, you know, just stark differences, which they have stark similarities also in that they both take funding from fossil fuel profiteers. But um, he does talk about investing in, you know, green technology, investing in, you know, transitioning away from fossil fuels to some degree. So, of course, on the issue of climate change, if we are choosing between Trump and Biden, Biden is a superior. And what about Trump's platform? You know, Trump's platform, it's shocking. He, he'll acknowledge um, climate change sometimes, but then he'll switch back to, oh, it's not really happening. It's not a problem. He doesn't talk about it at all. I mean, it's 2020. We haven't hit hurricane season yet. Um, I'm really frightened about what's happening with the, with the Arctic um, in Siberia. There temperatures there are consistently in the 90s and the 100s um, in a place that used to have permafrost. And, um, you know, that's, I'm, it's highly concerning and we're going to need all hands on deck to reverse the harm that's already been caused. Part of the the article gets into the political uh, ramifications, and this is a constant theme whenever the environment is addressed. Uh, Lorena, I've read this same (laughs) basic article a million times in, in my lifetime, and that is if the Democrats or an environmentalist, presuming there's an environmentalist on the Republican side, push right. too hard on environmental controls. They will lose the working class vote that uh, and they and they always talk about it in terms of uh, Pennsylvania with fracking industry. Uh, but they also yeah. talk about the coal mining industry in downstate Illinois. The working class vote is gone forever if uh, the Democrats push too hard on that. Uh, mm-hmm. And. The Democrats tried to respond to that to a certain deal uh, with mm-hmm. the Green New Deal by saying we can create jobs uh, mm-hmm. and be environmentally uh, mm-hmm. uh, stewards. Do you have a mm-hmm. sense that that conflict is still active in politics today where you have to choose between the environment and a job? I think that narrative may have been pushed by the media um, and it's really not accurate. If we look at like the success and not, of course, like this 
the Charles Booker's campaign in Kentucky and Paula Jean Swearin in West Virginia, both are progressive Democrats. Charles Booker would have been our nominee if we hadn't had all this interference from Chuck Schumer. And Paula Jean Swearin, um, who's running for Senate and is the Democratic nominee in West Virginia, both of them embrace a Green New Deal um, the government has the capacity to invest in new industries and create sustaining industries that not only create well-paying unionized jobs, but also work to correct the harm that has been done by ignoring, ignoring climate change for, for so long. Like part of the crisis of capitalism is that our world is so broken. It is so hurt. It needs so much work to get back to a healthy place. And yet, there is no funding for the work that needs to be done because the power is all controlled by the people who are profiting from the hurt that's being caused. It just Jeff Bezos tomorrow, you know, decided that he wanted to end climate change. He could unilaterally do it because of how much funding he's concentrated for himself because of our laws that he helped lobby and create. And so if we had elected officials like Charles Booker and Paula Jean Swearin saying, you know, we can invest in green technology in areas that used to be thriving off of fossil fuel extraction, you know, we can create a new future for our communities as we tr instead of trying to, like, just revive something that is never going to come back. And you talk about a narrative, and that's, that's a good word for it. Whenever... Uh, I have a conversation with my friends of the centrist persuasion. And I do have some friends of the centrist persuasion. Lorraine, I don't know if you have any. Um, Nobody's perfect. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's perfect, even me. Uh, I have some friends of the centrist. I bet you have some friends of the centrist persuasion somewhere in the closet that you're uh, hiding. But anyway, um, uh, so it, it's amazing how many times they'll tell me, and generally it's local issue, but it's also national issues. But if you just uh, calm down and trim your sails a little bit and temper the rhetoric, I hold off, we can get elected and we can do some of the things you want to do. I've heard this line many times, Lorraine. And then mm -hmm. let's say that the guy <laughs> gets elected mm -hmm. and then it's like, well, Ben, there's another election. It's a very important election. All right. And we have Mm -hmm. uh, so trim your sails a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. What's your sense of where uh, people in the country are in that attitude of trimming your sails? Um, well, I think that gaslighting tactic is something that I'm so fortunate to have been involved so closely with a, with a political race here in Chicago because. You know, I never was involved in politics as deeply as I was when I was helping, you know, um, Byron's race, um, my husband, Alderman, 25th Ward, because, um, you know, they keep us as power. And so I'm just a person who's, you know, like a normal person. And they try to give you imposter syndrome, like, oh, well, you know, if you were an elected official, you'd understand that compromises need to be made. You need to be a centrist, yada, yada, yada. But it turns out that, like, once you get into office, the, you could work to find solutions. It's the centers who are saying, oh, no, you can't have this, you can't have that, because they have to accommodate to the interests of the donors who paid for them to get elected in the first place. So that's the thing. is like It's denying the possibility that the oppressed can rise. You know, we can have freedom now. James Baldwin died saying, how long do I have to wait for your progress? And it turns out we don't have to wait at all. 
we are the we are the majority. The people who are making these decisions, Michael Caden, who is colonizing park and Parkland and Lincoln Park, you know, these people have names. They have addresses. They are very small in number, and they are using their power to hurt millions of people, undermine the democratic voice of millions of people. And the only thing stopping those millions of people from fighting back is that and gaslit, and they don't they don't know how they're being manipulated. And, you know, for me, it became very clear, like, you know, once we won and it was just like, oh, wow, government could work for the people. It's entirely possible. It's this dirty money and this corruption that's preventing it from happening. So when I hear centers say, oh, you got to trim your sales, I'm wondering who's paying you to say that. All right, we might as well switch gears to the local uh, because uh, Lorraine uh, mentioned it. And yes, her husband, who's also been on the show several times, Arasisha Lopez, is the ornament of the 25th Ward. Uh, and he's also the answer to the question, uh, is um, is automatic, uh prerogative a real issue in the city of Chicago? It's no. And I always love saying this uh, when I, Byron's name comes up because he was against uh, the TIF deal uh, in the South Loop, and but they passed it anyway in the last session of the 78 TIF deal, I should say. Uh, they passed uh, anyway in the last uh, city council session uh, before uh, uh, Mayor Lightfoot took office, Mayor Rahm's last city council, on the argument that even though Byron Lopez was against it, uh, he was not the sworn <laughs> alderman, so it didn't matter what he said. So Talk about false narratives, Lorene. Okay, mm-hmm. there you go, right there. A false narrative. That is a classic false narrative, correct? Yeah. Um, it, it's funny, though, because you were kind of the first one to really start calling it out and being like, I don't like this talk about aldermanic prerogative because you have a perfect, you have a perfect, you know, villain, Ed Burke, and all these politicians who did all these terrible things with their aldermanic prerogatives, but you know, if you get someone honest in there who's trying to do work on behalf of the community, then you have a corporate media that's painting an alderman trying to use their power for good to say, oh, you're trying to have aldermanic prerogative. And then what do they replace it with? Mayoral prerogative. And it's like, <laughs> um, can, can the neighborhoods have some prerogatives? Can the people who live here who make $1,000 a year and try to keep their home while taxes are rising and you're giving tax cuts to you know, the Sears Tower, but you're not giving any breaks to a homeowner who's getting like $50,000 worth of housing code violations on a home they're trying to hold on to, you know, where's their prerogative? Uh, that would be called democracy, uh, neighborhood prerogative. But let me just say this right now. Yeah. Uh, here we get, I'm getting suckered into another conversation about alderman and prerogative. But it's really important for me to say this point. I cannot allow this moment to pass, uh, Lori, without mentioning this point. <laughs> and this is for our listeners. We have a lot of listeners outside of Chicago. Okay. And this is relevant to you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, because what we're really talking about in the abstract is a false narrative that's p- p- positioned, mm-hmm. and then the debate is within the confines of that narrative. We're going to have that discussion when we talk about uh, police and schools, the false narrative there. I'll mm-hmm. get to that. But in this case, we never had legitimate automatic prerogative in the city of Chicago uh, since Harold Washington died. We've always had mayoral prerogative. It was mm-hmm. only when the mayor and the alderman agreed that the it looked as though the alderman was driving the bus. But there's, I could give you three or four examples from mm-hmm. the daily years and the ROM years where the local alderman disagreed with the mayor and guess who won? The mayor. 
So uh-huh. it's always been a fraudulent issue. I'm, I'm still irritated. For you, ben. What's that? Snapping, snapping for you. Okay, okay, yeah. So I always got a little irritated with the left, my beloved left, that had this moment where it was fighting all romantic prerogative. It was, <laughs> I thought it was doing more damage than good. I love my mm-hmm. left dearly, but every now and then they lose their mind. All right, anyway, uh, so I just had to mention that uh, because that gives me a sense of the role uh, that uh, Byron Cicero Lopez plays in the city right now. Okay, so we're talking local politics. Uh, let well, I mentioned it. Uh, let's combine your knowledge of local politics and your knowledge of science and your humble opinion. Should the Chicago yeah. public schools open in September? Go. I'm going to say something controversial. I'm going to say yes. If you triple the funding to every public school in America so that they can implement infrastructure and staffing needed to educate the students and protect the workers safely. But if they don't triple public education funding, then no. I think they should just triple educational funding anyway. If the pandemic were to disappear tomorrow, let's just triple educational funding anyway. But that's the lefty of me speaking. Uh, Why do you want to invest in our youth, Ben? We have have more important (laughs) things to do. I'm sorry. I got carried away talking to you. Um, All right. So what are the kinds of things that you would like to see uh, if you triple the the amount of funding of some magical world instead of Donald Trump ordering, commanding public schools uh, to to reopen? uh, He would actually back up his words uh, with support. What would you like to see uh, funded? I think we'd have to reopen those 50 schools that Rahm Emanuel closed that we have the space to social distance our students, especially in communities that are disproportionately impacted by COVID. Um, So opening up those buildings and then building these, you know, partitions where kids can, you know, getting the experts in the room, getting engineering folks in the room, getting bubbles on the heads of these kids somehow, you know, somehow engineering solutions to this, because you can't focus it on, behavior. You cannot tell a five-year-old child, a 10-year-old child to stay six feet away from all of their friends at all times. You have to engineer engineer barriers. And that's what we need to do to engineer separation so that these kids don't get exposed to each other in really tremendous ways. And, uh, And require masking, that kind of thing as well? Masking, um, you know, all sorts of protocols, uh, ventilation, you know, really retrofitting these buildings to make it so that it's very difficult for communicable diseases to move around. And as we know, you know, with life, like every year there's life outbreaks and, you know, schools are hotbeds of disease communication when there isn't a global pandemic. So, you know, we really need to start taking seriously the fact that this is a disease that transfers very easily and we have the tools with which to retrofit our schools to to do this if we invested the money, but it would be tremendously expensive, just like it would be tremendously expensive at my office. If they really wanted to bring us back, they could engineer all these controls, and perhaps maybe it would be possible then, um, not barring the fact that public transportation would also need to be fixed. Um, so it would just take a tremendous investment, and I don't see they. That's that's how Republicans and all these people work, right? They want the burden, the cost to be on us. They could spend the money to keep us alive, 
or they could not spend the money and just tolerate, you know, 20,000 students dead by the end of next year. And they won't say it, but they'd rather tolerate the 20,000 students dead. All right, Lori, now don't get upset with me for what I'm about to say. But if I had to choose mm -hmm. between expending federal dollars on mm -hmm. uh, retrofitting the EPA office in downtown Chicago so that EPA employees could return to that office and spending that money as opposed to spending that money on public schools so that school children in Chicago could go back to school in September. I'm sorry to tell you this. I would put you, the EPA, below the students in priority. And I'd say, keep working at home until we have a vaccine or until we have abundance of money that I'll see down the road. Do you agree with me or disagree with me on that point? Um, I reluctantly accept your decision. <laughs> What's the reluctance? <laughs> Just the, the need to perform that, you know, there's disagreement. The need, I'm sorry. What did you say? The need to we perform. Gotta, we got to pretend like we got to pretend like there's some disagreement to create the drama on the show. You know. I see. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So, con point, counterpoint, Ben Lorene. No, but uh, uh, you're you're right. You're absolutely correct. They could, if they really wanted to, they could uh, retrofit the entire uh, building where you work. I don't know if it would be. Um, I don't. I, I definitely don't think it would be on my list of. of priorities uh, for spending money to protect people in this pandemic. Mm -hmm. But they could do that if, if they choose instead. They just want you to go back and good yeah. luck, Laureen. Uh, they don't care about be it. Getting enough masks and PPE for these hospital workers in July. Um, yeah. So. Uh, by the way, we uh, to folks listening to this interview, we if you want to hear more about something, I had Greg Kelly on the show earlier, uh, SEIU Healthcare. We talked at great length about um, the dangers that healthcare workers are facing on the front line. So you can check out that interview. Greg Kelly was on the show uh, earlier today. So, all right. So um, you're uh, very cautious about reopening the schools. I, I share your caution uh, tremendously. It's, it's an interesting uh, political a game that's being played. We sort of like pick and choose. You talk about narratives. We sort of pick and choose awesome. what we're going to get tough on. Uh, and there se it seems to be a reluctance on the part of officials, at least at this current moment, it could change uh -huh. any day now, to just unilaterally say we're not going to open the schools in September because somehow or other, I think the narrative is that's irresponsible to the children. Um, but there's like, we'll close the bars. Do you follow what I'm saying? Now, listen, I'm all for closing the bars. Don't get me wrong at this point. If if it's dangerous, mm -hmm. if people, but do, do, do you see the distinction there? They're like, well, we'll let the kids get exposed, but we're going to protect people who go to bars. doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's, it's irresponsible. They can, they can see with the charts coming out of uh, Arizona and Florida and Texas and that the fact that borders are open, um, there's no way that we're going to be able to open schools in Chicago or really anywhere in the country, um, and, and at least in the continental U.S., until, you know, there's much more contact tracing and infrastructure put in place, which I don't see any investment coming federally for that. So it's just not going to happen. They, they want what they aren't paying for. 
they want what they're not paying for. Yes, I agree with you on that point. All right, let's move on. Uh, since I mentioned it earlier, let's talk defunding and police. We've done a lot of uh, discussion about that on our show. I can't remember if I ever had a conversation with Byron about it. He's been on the show several times. The issue, uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, alderman from the 35th Ward, has been on the show talking about it. Rosanna Rodriguez, uh, the alderwoman from the 33rd Ward, has been on the show uh, talking about it. Uh, Daniel Spada from the first ward has been on to talk about it. I don't believe I've ever had a conversation with Byron on it. Maybe I didn't. I forgot. Uh, but in general, what's your attitude about uh, defunding uh, the Chicago police or police in general? Definitely. Um, police are a reactive um, tool used by the elites to maintain, to control a behavior that's a consequence of divestment. So like we have massive inequality um, when you divest from communities of color, uh, a symptom of that is crime, you know, and police are there to control symptoms of the crime of, you know, divesting from our communities and having such widespread white supremacist policies and segregation to the point where, you know, of course, there's going to be some crime when you have so much divestment from a community. They have no, there are no resources that are coming in to invest in the youth in Chicago communities. And so, you know, police continue to have, we spend three times more on police in Chicago than we did in 1964, even though I think our population has decreased since then. And so why would that be? If not just control the symptoms of rising inequality and rising injustice. And so if we treat the root causes of the problem, which is, you know, mental health services for people, uh, lack of housing, lack of schooling, you know, all sorts of social problems that have roots that run deeper than any police officer could ever address. You know, if we address those problems, then we'll find that the need for police greatly decreasing. When uh, ever... Uh, somebody of uh, the centrist persuasion hears the kind of argument that you just made almost instinctively. They say that's a living proposition to raise. I've had this conversation with Carlos Ramirez Rosa so many times. What's your response when you get that kind of feedback uh, from people who say you cannot articulate a defund the police strategy because uh, people want the police and you'll turn off voters. What's your response? I'm saying we have to challenge that. Voters, you know, we're here to change the polls. We're here to change minds. We're here to change status quo that isn't working. How long have we invested in police? We have more people in prison than all of communist China. And they have a population four times as big as ours. Do we think that we can keep putting people in prison to solve this problem? How many black families, how many working class families have we torn apart from this? Like, it is a true humanitarian crisis. There's like, you know, why do families? And then what? if you watch the documentary The 13th on Netflix or on YouTube, you can see what's the next iteration of this. The next iteration of mass incarceration is electronic monitoring. Why? Because a private industry can continue to profit from, you know, controlling the working class, controlling people who are become dehumanized. Like these people who are criminals, they are human beings also. They, you know, if you, if you study acting at all, which I had the privilege to do briefly, you know, you learn that every human being is capable of being anything from the prostitute to the priest. And the only difference between those two choices are circumstances. 
And so let's look at the circumstances under which people perform criminal behavior and look to solve those root causes so that they can have opportunities to make choices that are better for everyone around them. Is that so difficult to wrap our minds around? Are we not enough advanced enough as a society to like think of a scientific solution to the problem? This is not new. They they cultivate misinformation like this, like they cultivate misinformation on climate change. In the 90s, people were ringing the bells about climate change. And then what? We had a media that was kind of saying, oh, well, you know, there's this agreement. We don't know how bad it's going to get until we come to 2020 and we find, wow. Not, they were wrong, and we should have acted back in 1990. And it's the same thing with with police. They've been telling us, telling us, telling us, you know, oh, we should invest in violence prevention. Oh, but we can't defund police. And I'm saying it's time to try defunding the police because funding them astronomically has not made our communities safer. Our communities are more violent than ever. And let's let's really invest in the real solutions that are guided by science. You know, violence transmits just like any other communicable disease. You can find, you can predict where violence will break out. And so let's use the science to, you know, help give opportunities to people who are at risk for these behaviors. Very well put. Uh, Laureen, uh, one of the, um, the defund police issues that there was actually a vote on took place about three weeks ago, I want to say. I'm losing track of time. And uh, for out-of-town listeners, I'll boil it down for you. Uh, the Board of Education, which is appointed by the mayor, uh, had a vote on whether they should tear up a contract, an intergovernmental agreement they had with the police department. I'm not making anything up. This is how things happen in Chicago. One body of the government made an agreement with another body. Uh, and the terms of that agreement was that the Board of Education would spend $33 million. It would send that money back to the police department to cover the cost of police officers who spent a good chunk of their time in public schools. I don't know what they did when the schools weren't open, uh, but a good chunk of their time was in the public schools. Uh, And the Board of Education had a vote on ripping up that contract. Uh, uh, On the issue, this irritated me, uh, Lorraine. The issue they chose was specifically about not having police in the schools. I would have wished they had also <laughs> considered the issue of having $33 million in educational funds being shipped over to another department. I thought they would have been a little more territorial and protective about their budget, uh, but that's mm-hmm. just me. And uh, it was a four to three vote, which it lost, mm-hmm. the measure lost, but that was considered a revolutionary moment in Chicago because <laughs> the Board of Education... Uh, not only dared to consider something that the mayor who appoints them oppose, but they came very close to approving it. Oh, what's your take uh, on that great revolutionary moment in Chicago? I think we need the mayor to keep her promises and give us an elected school board. You know, my understanding was she blocked it in Springfield um, so that we couldn't elect our own school board. And, you know, as a result, we have these kinds of decisions that undermine the you know, the ambitions of the people of Chicago. We want a future where, you know, police aren't criminalizing our students. How many, how many instances do we have of, you know, police abusing students, overreacting to normal adolescent behavior and criminalizing it and putting that child 
into a system that they will spend their whole life fighting against and dragging their family and all their loved ones in with it. I mean, the cost of policing in our school isn't just the $33 million. It's the cost of what it means to be incarcerated in the United States and the burden on that person's family, on that person's community. You know, the cost could not be greater. And instead, we could be investing in, you know, crisis. We have four crisis counselors in all of Chicago public schools. Every weekend, we have Chicago public school students dying of violence. And there are no crisis counselors that are able to comfort those children. I mean, after these shootings, how many golden retrievers do they send to these schools to help the kids process, like, the trauma that they've endured? Meanwhile, in Chicago public schools, when our children are going through traumas, nobody is there to help them grieve. No one is there to help them you know, process such a trauma and that carries with them for the rest of their life. And we wonder why we have all these systemic issues. We don't invest in the solutions. Police are not the solution. It's a fact. So why do we have a mayor who's so intent on subverting solutions to our problems? We should really be asking ourselves that as a voting public and as a participatory democracy. Why do we have a mayor who opposes, you know, solutions? Uh, well, I should say, when I just listened to you talking uh, about uh, the need for trauma officers in the schools after a shooting, the reality, of course, is there may not be uh, schools open this September for all right. the reasons we cited. So the situation, the disadvantages will just grow. Right. You know, the, you know what I'm saying? The inequities will just grow. Uh the we won't we don't if we don't have school in uh in september it's not that the the children of chicago won't be exposed to trauma there'll still be crime in chicago and, and violence mm. in chicago but there won't even be a school that they could right. potentially go to so it'll just exacerbate uh right. this situation uh, i just i saw an article before we um came on the air today. Uh, Lorraine, I haven't even talked about, but I'll just mention it. It was an article. I can't remember where I saw it. May have been the New York Times. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. But it, it talked about how um, private schools are planning open in September. In part because they have such an advantage with money. So they they can... the 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 ratio of students to teachers is already lower than it is in a regular public school. So they hire a few more teachers. They can lower the number of kids in a classroom. They have large campuses, so it's easier to spread out. So you're not all concentrated uh, in a school. They can hire teacher aides to help do pullouts, uh, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, there's, in other words, there's room to move and to protect uh, the children and the teachers and have social distancing. Again, this is a, this is an advantage that you're getting at uh, in just part of our system. Wealth has an right. advantage. Uh, right, and, and we've and, seen the wealth. Yeah, we've seen the wealth I'm of Chicagoans and Illinois. Illinois one percent grow to this great degree, and so it'll be interesting. We should watch for the mayor's budget coming up. Does she tax the rich to help? close the gap and invest in what these communities need. Maybe we were talking about these kids being stuck at home. A lot of them are in unsuitable housing. A lot of them are doubled up because of homelessness being so high. Are we opening up those 1,000 vacant units with Chicago Housing Authority? Are we investing in the systemic needs of Chicago's working people? 
we're going to see very soon. All right. Very good. Lorraine Targos, I guess it's a good uh, point as ever to leave it. I want to thank you very much uh, before coming on the show. Any last thoughts you want to give? Uh, anything you want to tell people before I let you go? Um, you know, stay vigilant. Join the Democratic Socialists of America. <laughs> All right, Lorraine Targos, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Hey, college students, are you looking for a way to get ahead this summer? Northwestern University is offering hundreds of undergrad courses online this summer. Choose an intensive sequence in learning. Registration is open now. Visit northwestern.edu slash summer for details. We got to thank the following unions for sponsoring this program. By the way, if you're listening to this show, we have over 500,000 downloads. And if you own a business, boy, we would love to sponsor it. That's right. Uh, just contact Tracy Bame at the Chicago Reader. And uh, I don't know, find the number for the Sun-Times and call someone there and uh, say, hey, I want to sponsor the Ben Jarofsky show. I'm not sure who you asked for, but uh, yeah, that'd be fantastic if you uh, became a sponsor. Well, I'll make a commercial. We'll do a Ben will do a live read. He loves live reads. But seriously, uh, I would love to add your business or union to this list. I am about to read the Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. That's correct. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. That's correct. And of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by our dear friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Let me tell you about voting by mail. It's pretty cool. Voting by mail ensures equitable access for everyone. Normally, vote by mail applications are filled out online or in person. This creates a burden for people with limited access to transportation or internet services. Disproportionately, the elderly or people of color who are among those at greatest risk from COVID-19. Because of the pandemic, a law was passed in Illinois for November requiring vote by mail applications be sent to anyone who voted in 2018, 2019, or the 2020 primary. This falls short of what is needed particularly since these elections saw low turnout. We need to expand access. Mail-in voting is the best way to ensure everyone's voice can be heard safely. We can help expand voting access in Chicagoland by asking officials to send every eligible voter a vote-by-mail application. So, visit VoteMailChicago.com. That's VoteMailChicago.com. Dot com for call scripts and a petition. One more time. Vote. V-O-T-E. Mail. M-A-I-L. Chicago. C-H-I-C-A-G-O. Dot com to make sure that every voter in Cook County has safe and equitable polling. That's correct. Heard a lot of complaints. I'm not a doctor. Heard a lot of